analysis that you only get on Pacifica Radio. So that's the State of the Union Address on Tuesday, January 12th, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. All that on this very radio station. I hope you'll join us. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone Stone's Throw today is January the 12th 2016. Uh, we are looking forward to the president's speech. It will be carried live here, six o'clock, six o'clock our time. Let's see, that's eight o'clock back east. Yes, I uh, <laughs> was listening to the last show and the physics professor telling us about hope for humanity. Barack Obama's book, one of his books was called The Audacity of Hope. How audacious a thought to be hopeful, my goodness. Almost sounds uh, innocent. <laughs> Search for intelligent life on earth. Yes, uh, the professor was talking about that wonderful book. I, I don't know why I've always found that funny. I just start laughing. I think my cat is very intelligent, but then what do I know? I have so many crazy notes this week, and I, I've got to focus. Got to focus on um, the man, yes. The meaning leaks from the molecules. That's what the professor said. Oh, I tell you, free association has become my downfall. Uh, I tried late, late last night uh, to think about all of the things spinning around in my head, the, uh, uh, you know, the weight of them, you know, David Bowie's ethereal existence ending and whether that uh, qualifies as a major, major subject uh, for analysis. I don't know. I remember David Bowie's androgyny. Uh, years ago, I thought that this would save the world. And early this morning, I listened to uh, the big fuss about Angela Merkel's troubles in Germany. Uh, you know, how she's being blamed 
for the refugees. And, uh, of course, she, with the follies of the compassionate, had tried to do the right thing. And uh, apparently she's being blamed, yes. The evidence, the actual evidence, indicates that the criminality there, these assaults on women that have erupted... Uh, they stem mostly from men who have been been around for a long time, used to call them skinheads, remember? Anyway, uh, among the arrests there, there's only one Syrian individual. It's so difficult. By the time people separate their facts from the perceptions, it's too late, you know? I don't know why uh, there seems to be this compulsion to blame uh, you know uh, probably from the mass media the surge of immigrants obviously frightened uh, the people I was going to say the good Germans the world's pain always demands scapegoats uh, I don't know I uh, I assume that the leaders of nations know that they'll be targets, and uh, at least in the short run, that they will be blamed. The long-term legacy, that's another story. Uh, the legacy of our own president, Barack Hussein Obama, seems at the moment reasonably secure, at least to those of us who feel that damage control is the best uh, any U.S. president can do just at the moment while the uh, right-wing conspiracy is in office. Well, that they have kind of, uh, what do you call that, uh, uh, death grip on Congress. The speech of the president this evening, uh, I guess it's his last official speech, but maybe not. Um, a year is a long time. I guess he's going to try to... Uh, you know, sum up his administration. Uh, I want to look at his first book. Waste any more time. Let's just go to Barack's early autobiography. Uh, get a sense of his motivations and a sense of the man. This book was written back in 1995. It's titled Dreams from My Father. That's from, not of. And I marked several of the dreams, and I'm afraid they're they're pretty surreal. Uh, I'm gonna have to dig in the book to see what you make of them. They're kind of kind of frightening, uh, especially this old man who seems to haunt his dreams. Never mind. Uh, if you are a serious historian, you will want to look at David Remnick's biography. Uh, well, it's as much about. Uh, record of the times, of the history, as it is of the man, the president. Uh, that book is titled The Bridge, Big Fat Tome. David Remnick is the editor of The New Yorker. Anyway, um, this book, the one I have in front of me, Dreams from My Father, has a rather long denouement, the end, the last chunk of the book, is about what happened when he went to Kenya? And it's very ambiguous. Uh, actually, that needs another book. I, I think perhaps he needs to wrap up his job here and pack his bags and go back. 
to uh, visit all the places he looked at uh, back in the day. Uh, I imagine mm, he will want to look it again and look his uh, tribe in the eye, his clan, all those roots, African roots, ancestors. These relatives uh, expected so much of his father. And now, of course, they will look to him, especially for support. Uh, there are stories from all over the world. There's a, a half-brother in China. It goes on and on. Uh, I guess the job for the president would be, uh, the ex-president, would be at the United Nations. Uh, that's a pretty good show to run. And, I don't know... Uh, it seems like the right place. Um, Ex-presidents is an interesting concept, uh, kind of new, you know. Uh, Jimmy Carter would be the the first who has really done almost as much or more as an ex-president uh, in office. He had a hell of a time. Uh, the Clintons, well, yes, indeed. Uh, I guess um, the daughter can run that show and. Bill Clinton can do his thing, make a lot of money. I think he does make a great deal of money when he speaks. Perhaps he needs to just be a fundraiser. Anyway, I was thinking about our president, whether or not he is the most worldly or cosmopolitan. Certainly he's symbol of diversity. Uh, he... Uh, he compares with some of the earlier, well, let's see, I think it's more the the class stuff, yeah. Uh, when he went to Indonesia with his mother and stepfather, he was only ten, and he did live at a grassroots level. He did get a, a child's eye view and a, a person who, what is that, is streetwise, who knows what's going down now. Let's see, Thomas Jefferson went to Paris, uh, Kennedy, JFK, I see him in London, but uh, those guys, you know, they always went in style. They were still part of the ruling class. Well, Bill Clinton was a student, uh, I see him as a student in London. Uh, he took a, a funky little car and went off to Wales to find the home of Dylan Thomas and apparently got stuck in Swansea. Anyway, uh, still, he was a uh, middle-class dude. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that the section in uh, this book, Jakarta, is kind of heartbreaking. I, I thought of a movie called The Year of Living Dangerously. If you know that movie, you have a vague idea of what was going on. Uh, in those years, let's see. Barack begins his book with an epigraph from the Bible, Chronicles 29.15. For we are strangers before thee and sojourners as were all our fathers. Okay, he's coming there before the world as a sojourner. Uh, in the preface, Barack says that uh, the opportunity to write the book 
came while he was in law school. He'd been elected as the first African-American president of the Harvard Law Review, and that gave him some publicity, and so he got an advance from a publisher, and he went to work with the belief that the story, he writes, the story of my family, my efforts to understand that story, might speak in some way to the fissures of race that have characterized the... uh, Collision of cultures, the leaps through time, all those things that mark our modern life. Actually, here's a line on the cover from Marion Wright Edelman. Uh, She says that uh, this is uh, perceptive and wise. The book will tell you something about yourself, whether you are black or white. Hmm... Anyway, in the preface, he tries to explain his motives and his choices. Uh, Actually, he says that, well, he says that most of the characters in the book do remain a part of his life, except, uh, of course, his mother, whom we lost, he says, with a brutal swiftness. She died of cancer a few months after this book was published. That's in the mid-1990s. Barack writes, She had spent the previous ten years doing what she loved. She traveled the world, working in the distant villages of Asia and Africa, helping women buy a sewing machine or a milk cow or an education that might give them a foothold in the world's economy. She gathered friends from high and low. She took long walks, stared at the moon, foraged through the local markets of Delhi or Marrakesh for some trifle. A scarf or a stone carving that would make her laugh or please the eyes. She wrote reports, read novels, pestered her children and dreamed of grandchildren. Of course, uh, his reference to children, that would be Barack and his sister, Maya, his half-sister, the child of his Indonesian stepfather, uh, called Lola here. Anyway, uh, he says that she read the drafts of his book and corrected the stories. (laughs) She said he was careful not to comment on my characterizations of her, but he, she was quick to explain or defend the less flattering aspects of my father's character. He goes on to say she managed her illness with grace and good humor. She helped my sister and me push on with our lives despite our dread, our denials, our sudden constrictions of the heart. I think sometimes that had I known she would not survive her illness... I might have written a different book, less a meditation on the absent parent, his father, more a celebration of the one who was the single constant in my life. In my daughters, I see her every day, her joy, her capacity for wonder. I won't try to describe how deeply I mourn her passing. I know that she was the kindest, most generous spirit I have ever known, and that what is best in me I owe to her. 
It's curious. <laughs> the mother of these men, I think of President Carter's mother, Lillian, the one who <laughs> went off to India to join the Peace Corps in her 60s. You remember that? Aha. You want to know what's going on in this world? Ask the mother and the grandmother. Uh, <laughs> yes. He talks about his stepfather, Lola. Now, this guy seems to be to be a uh, certainly a, a more uh, uh, does make a stronger impression on him than his own father, whom he only knew for about four months when he was ten years old. Father uh, Barack Obama the first came to um, visit his mother and in Honolulu. Well, let's see, they were in Hawaii then, and uh, the father tried to stay with them. It didn't work out. Uh, couldn't get along with his father-in-law, so they moved him to an apartment nearby. Anyway, uh, this father, Lolo, seems to me to be more important. He uh, died in his 50s. Once again, there had been a divorce, but his mother tried to help uh, this husband in his Last illness, anyway. He says that this guy uh, knew elusive things. He knew ways of managing the emotions that I felt. Ways to explain fate's constant mysteries. Like how to deal with beggars. We're in Jakarta now. Kid is ten. They seem to be everywhere, a gallery of ills, men, women, children in tattered clothing, matted with dirt, some without arms, others without feet, victims of scurvy or polio or leprosy, walking on their hands, rolling down crowded sidewalks in jerry-built carts, their legs twisted behind them like contortionists. At first, I watched my mother give over her money to anyone who stopped at our door or stretched out an arm as we passed on the streets. Later, when it became clear that the tide of pain was endless, she gave more selectively, learning to calibrate the levels of misery. <laughs> Lolo thought her moral calculations endearing but silly, and whenever he caught me following her example with the few coins in my possession, he would raise his eyebrows and take me aside. How much money do you have, he would ask. I'd empty my pocket. <laughs> How many beggars are there on the street? <laughs> I tried to imagine the number that had come by the house in the last week. Well, you see there, <laughs> once uh, I had lost count of the, the uh, individuals, might be better to save your money and make sure you don't end up on the street yourself. It was the same way about servants. Okay, this section uh, on origins goes on to give a lot of details about trying to live in an unjust world. Uh, he does say that his stepfather, Alolo, tried to help in the ways that he could, uh, he would say, your mother has a soft heart. That is a good thing in a woman, but you will be a man someday. A man needs to have more sense. 
had nothing to do with good or bad, he explained. It was a matter of taking life on its own terms. In this section, we we learn how this man uh, had been completely disillusioned in Indonesia. He had been a hopeful individual back in Hawaii when he married uh, Barack's mother. But uh, it didn't work out for him when he came home. The political situation was such that... Uh, he, well, let us say he did what he could with what was available, but it seems that alcohol became uh, his support. Uh, now, his mother had expected things to be difficult, but uh, not quite so bad. Before leaving Hawaii, he says she had tried to learn all she could about Indonesia goes on to talk about her efforts to be understanding. Uh, Sukarno had recently been replaced, but the report said it had been a bloodless coup and that people supported the change. But then Sukarno had grown corrupt. He was a demagogue, totalitarian, too comfortable with the communists, and so on. She knew that it was a poor country, underdeveloped, utterly foreign, and so on the end of this section, he says, what his mother wasn't prepared for was the loneliness. It was a constant, like a shortness of breath. Nothing she could point to, really. He had welcomed her warmly. He had gone ahead and then sent for the two of them, gone out of his way to make her feel at home, providing her with whatever creature comforts he could afford. His family treated her with tact and generosity, treated her son as one of their own. Still, something had happened between her and Lola. Lolo, that's L-O-L-O is this guy's uh, <laughs> nickname. In the year they had been apart, I guess things changed. In Hawaii, he had been so full of life, so eager with his plans. He would tell her about growing up as a boy during the war, watching his father and eldest brother leave to join the Revolutionary Army, hearing the news that both had been killed, everything lost, the Dutch armies setting their house aflame, their flight into the countryside, his mother selling her gold jewelry a piece at a time in exchange for food. Ah, things would be changing now that the Dutch had been driven out, Lolo had told her. He would return and teach at the university and be a part of that change. Okay. <laughs> it seems that things didn't work out. Uh, it was as if he had been pulled into some dark, hidden place, taking with him the brightest part of himself. Ah. Uh, Okay, I think I'll skip over the bits about uh, his sleeping with a pistol under his pillow. Uh, his job was a <laughs> catastrophe, yes. Uh, didn't pay very much. The refrigerator alone cost two months' salary. Now with a wife and child to provide for, no wonder he was depressed. 
Okay, his mother got a job, did everything she could. She was uh, teaching English to Indonesian businessmen at the American embassy. The money helped, but didn't relieve her loneliness. Uh, the Indonesian businessmen weren't much interested in the niceties of the English language. Several made passes at her. The Americans were mostly older men, careerists in the State Department. Uh, anyway, uh, this goes on, and there's a description of a disintegrating marriage. Uh, and, of course... The tragic events. Uh, yes, I think of that movie again, The Year of Living Dangerously, and the scene in which the actress Linda Hunt, who played a man, uh, she committed suicide. She goes to a hotel and she leaves a great big sheet out the window of the hotel. It says, Sukarno, feed your people. Police go up there and throw off the balcony. She does for the... Uh, gesture, just this one gesture. Uh, anyway, uh, the corruption, corruption is grim. Uh, shakedowns by police, entire industries carved out for the president's family and entourage. Mm. With each new story, she would go to Lolo in private and ask him, is this true? Remember Godfather when she <laughs> goes to Michael and asks him uh, if the evil was real. Uh, anyway, his relatives told her that she just didn't understand. Uh, anyway, I think uh, there are a couple of scenes here that uh, I don't want to describe them because they're just... they're just too classic. Uh, his mother rushes in to try to try to help someone and uh, kind of makes a, a fool of herself uh, and uh, in the chapter in the next bit he's writes, he writes power this word fixed in my mother's mind like a curse in America it had generally remained hidden from view until you dug beneath the surface of things, until you visited an Indian reservation or spoke to a black person whose trust you had earned. But here, power was undisguised, indiscriminate, naked, always fresh in the memory. Power had taken Lolo and yanked him back into line just when he thought he'd escaped, made him feel its weight. Letting him know that his life wasn't his own. That's how things were. You couldn't change it. You could just live by the rules. Simple once you learned them. So Lolo had made his peace with power. Now, I've barely scratched the surface here. I'm so sorry. I wanted to get all the way to uh, Barack's encounter with Michelle and Southside Chicago. <laughs> anyway... He talks about guilt being a luxury. And, uh, oh, shoot. I wish I had more time. I think maybe I can, I can, I can continue with this next week at the same time because the stories in here are so revelatory. Uh, I think, I think we know who this guy is and, uh, whether or not we can trust him. Uh, 
This has been Jennifer Stone reading to you from Barack Obama's autobiography, Dreams from My Father, a story of race and inheritance. And I'll be back next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Angela Davis says, Mumia Abu-Jamal is one of the most important public intellectuals of our time. He offers us new ways of thinking about law, democracy, and power. As usual, Angela is right. This is Walter Turner inviting you to join Angela and Johanna Fernandez and myself as we gather to discuss Mumia and his important new book, Writing on the Wall, Selected Prison Letters. This will happen Thursday, February 18th at 7.30 p.m. at First Congregational Church of Oakland, 2501 Harrison Street. There's free parking and wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit, which is co-sponsored by City Lights Books. Advanced tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com, Marcus Books, and other independent bookshops. Find more information on the KPFA website for February 18th, Gathering for Mumia. Be sure to catch Apex Express on KPFA. Apex Express is a weekly program following news and cultural events throughout Asia and the Pacific Islands. Find out about issues affecting Asian American and Pacific Islander communities locally and globally. Get on board the Apex Express Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. on KPFA. Hey, this is Caroline Casey, weaver of Context for the Visionary Activist Show, a show that aspires to wed spiritual magic and conscious, compassionate social activism. Join us every Thursday at 2 p.m. as we invoke and implement a more ingeniously cooperative and reverent world.